You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. We have been going through the book of Luke together, and we are now on Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. This fall, as we looked at Luke, we're really asking the question, who is Jesus? Why did he come? And today... We are in a passage of increasing opposition, religious leaders beginning to oppose Jesus more. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, He said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the gospel of Christ. If you are feeling tired today, in body or soul, maybe you're feeling one hour less tired than you did yesterday, I want you to pay attention, because this is a passage about Sabbath. And Sabbath, at its essence, means deep rest in God. I'm going to assume everyone in here is at some level not deeply rested, of mind, body, soul, strength. So pay attention. This is a passage about Sabbath. In fact, it's several passages about Sabbath. So let's discuss Sabbath this morning through three points. Our resistance to Sabbath, our persuasion to Sabbath, and the Lord of the Sabbath. Our resistance to Sabbath, our persuasion to Sabbath, and the Lord of the Sabbath. First, our resistance to Sabbath. It might be helpful to do a little refresher on what is Sabbath in order to understand our resistance to it. It's a concept that emerges back in the Old Testament. 
It gets expanded first in the first telling of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. It's the fourth commandment. And God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. One day out of seven. And God grounds it in a reason, which is God created for six days and he rested on the seventh. In other words, the Sabbath is intended to remind us of our creatureliness, that we are limited in capacity and scope. And God is creator, and he is not limited in capacity and scope, and therefore Sabbath is meant to be worship of him, the creator. Creatures worshiping a creator, just like God created in Genesis 1. So, reason grounded first, worship. Fast forward a little bit to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy actually tells the Ten Commandments all over again, except this time the Fourth Commandment is given a slightly different reason for why we are to keep Sabbath one day in seven in, in order to be set apart from the other days, to be different from the other days. And God reminds Israel, for you were slaves in Egypt. And slaves have to work every day. And I want to remind you of your freedom, that I'm the one who saved you out of that slavery. So what is Sabbath? What does it feel like? What does deep and ultimate rest in God feel like? It feels like worship of him, reminding ourselves that we are creatures and he is the creator, and it looks like freedom from slavery, from the constant need to do something every hour, every minute, or every day. Worship and freedom. What is Sabbath? It is worship and freedom. So God creates these built-in reminders of what real rest feels like because it's not natural to us. You think about the celestial markings of time, and the week is the only one that doesn't have a celestial equivalent. So a day is the turning of the earth. Half the day we face the sun, half the day we don't. The month is the rotation of the moon around the earth. The year is the rotation of the earth around the sun. There is no celestial equivalent for the week. It is God's built-in reminder to tell us we need worship and we need freedom. Worship and freedom. The week is our reminder. As our own doctrinal statement, the Westminster Larger Catechism states it, keeping the Sabbath is not obvious to our natural human understanding It's just not something we would naturally do. If no one told us this is something we had to do, one in seven, we would never naturally do it. It's just not natural to us. Which calls to my mind the story of Eric Little, made famous in the 1981 film Chariots of Fire, the slow motion runner. Chariots of Fire. What's the story actually about, though? It's the story of this Scotsman named Eric Little, who was going to the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And his best event was the 100 meters. He was the fastest man in the world. And he finds out a couple months in advance that his best event is going to fall on a Sunday. And so he decides, to much world controversy, that he's not going to race because he wants to obey God. It's the Sabbath day. He wants to keep it holy, set apart from the other days. He races the other six days, but he's not going to race on a Sunday. And so he doesn't race. But he finds out months in advance, so he decides he'll start training for the 400 meters instead, which was not his best event. But of course, the story ends with a feel-good message, right? Eric Little trains for the 400 meters, he trains, he trains, he trains, and then he sets a world record and wins the gold medal. 
because he could race the 400 meters because it wasn't on a Sunday. Now, that might be a feel-good story for us today, and it came out in, the ni- in 1981. I'm not sure that movie could come out today. Why? Because we would be sitting there thinking the whole time, what? We all play fantasy football on Sundays. You mean he's not racing on a Sunday? This is crazy. Sabbath isn't natural to us. In fact, if we weren't reminded of it, we would have a natural resistance to it. Like the Pharisees in our text. They look like they're the obedient ones to Sabbath, but they aren't. In verse 1, Jesus is with his disciples. He's going through grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples are picking the heads of grain and eating them, presuming we as the reader should read that they're pretty hungry. They got nothing else to eat, and so they just have to eat along the way. But in verse 2, these Pharisees demonstrate some opposition. Now, presumably, they were following around too, because where were they? They must have been a part of the troop that's with Jesus and his disciples. Like, maybe they were trying out being a disciple too. Remember, it's not until the end of this passage that the disciples, the twelve, were actually named. And presumably, some Pharisees could have been among that group had they not demonstrated so much opposition. They are resistant to the disciples eating grain on the Sabbath because to them that was considered a work. Now, here's what you need to understand about the Pharisees. They were a religious party back in the first century, but they did not have any political power at all. In fact, because Israel was occupied by Rome, they wanted to make Israel, dare I say it, great again. And their method of Israel becoming great again was strict obedience to Old Testament law. So they would take an Old Testament law and add so many micro laws to it to say this is what obedience looks like. And so things like picking heads of grain, which the Old Testament really doesn't talk about, they said that's wrong. And as we'll see in the second story, healing someone on the Sabbath, the Old Testament doesn't say that's a violation of Sabbath, but the Pharisees held it was because they were trying to make Israel great again. They had lost the plot. They had lost the plot of the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath for? For worship and for freedom. So in verse 6, on another Sabbath, the second story of another Sabbath, their opposition grows, and there's a man who walks into a synagogue with a withered hand. And in verse 7, it basically says it's obvious now they're trying to trip Jesus up. And when Jesus heals the man, in verse 11, it tells us they were filled with, with fury. The Pharisees had forgotten that Sabbath's true purpose was not to make Israel great again, but it was for worship and freedom. Ah, you say, thank goodness. Thank goodness the Pharisees, like fundamentalist Christians, we, we don't need them anymore. We just need our freedom. We don't need all these rules. But ask yourself, Over the last four decades in American life, has dropping Sabbath restrictions resulted in a culture that worships God more? And has it resulted in a culture that experiences and feels more freedom? Or rather, are we a culture that's speeding up and getting more anxious? To ask the question is to answer it, isn't it? We're not feeling more freedom. We're not worshiping God more. To lose the Sabbath restrictions has not meant a culture of more rest. What I want you to see then is there's really two ways we can resist the Sabbath. 
We can resist the Sabbath like the Pharisees who make it all about the control of themselves and the control of others, and they forget that it was really always intended to be this communal worship of God. Or we can be irreligious. We can say, I don't need the rules. I don't need to worship God with other people in corporate worship. I don't need any of that. And then we, for, we just work all the time. And it doesn't have to be working for money. You can just be working around your house seven days a week. And then you've become a slave. And you've forgotten that Sabbath was meant for freedom. You can be religious and forget that Sabbath is ultimately not about control, but it's about the worship of God. Or you could be irreligious and scrap the rules and become a slave again. We'll resist Sabbath in all kinds of ways because, as the Westminster says, it's not natural for us. It's not obvious or natural to us. We will always face the tendency to neglect worship in our rule-keeping or neglect freedom by our constant work. How can we be persuaded to live a different life then? That's our second point this morning, our persuasion to Sabbath. What I want you to see here is that in both of the first two stories, Jesus adopts the same method of persuasion to the Pharisees. Same method. Now, it doesn't ultimately persuade them, but will it persuade us? That's the question. What is that method? The Pharisees express opposition in verse 2. Why are you doing what is not lawful? According to them, not according to the Bible. And Jesus responds in verse 3, beginning with a rhetorical question. Have you not read? Just a question. Now, he'll go on to describe this Old Testament reference, which we read about in 1 Samuel. I'll get to that in the next point. I just, right now, I just want you to see the method. Jesus acts decisively, he talks decisively after asking a question, and then in verse 5 he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't deal with them head on. He doesn't get sucked into their anxiety. He doesn't get sucked into, oh my gosh, he's breaking the rules. He just asks a question, and he does the same thing in verse 8. Knowing their thoughts, they haven't, the Pharisees haven't voiced opposition yet, but Jesus is omniscient, he is all-knowing. He calls the, withered, the man with the withered hand forward, and in verse 9, he asks a question. He doesn't make a declarative statement. He asks a question. It's a twofold question. Is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to save life or to destroy it on the Sabbath? Now, the implicit argument is, in Jesus' mind, I think, hey, to save a life helps somebody worship God and to preserve life. Or to do good helps them to experience freedom. Jesus has the original intention of Sabbath in mind. But his method is to ask a question. And then, verse 10, to act decisively to heal the man. To persuade others, Jesus acts, asks questions and then acts decisively. Asking questions and then acting decisively. That is the method of persuasion I'm trying to outline for you as well. One of my leading lights in the past year is, ironically, a deceased Jewish rabbi named Edwin Friedman, who died in the 1990s. Friedman popularized a leadership term that I've used a couple times in here before called non-anxious presence. Friedman wrote in ways about persuasion and leadership that are often counterintuitive to our ways of thinking about persuasion and leadership today. 
He says, hey, to really be a persuading person, you can't be sucked into other people and their fear or their manipulation. And if you have a fear response to someone or a manipulative response to someone, you're only proving how reactive you are in the first place. He says, no, a persuader is somebody who does what Jesus does. Now, Friedman doesn't say this. I'm just connecting the dots. He says, someone who asks a lot of questions and then acts decisively. In his book, A Failure of Nerve, Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix, he contrasts this with other forms of persuasion, which are often power plays or manipulation. Friedman says, It has been my impression that at any public or private gathering, those who are quickest to inject words like sensitivity, empathy, consensus, trust, confidentiality, and togetherness into their arguments have perverted these humanitarian words into power tools to get others to adapt to them. He's not saying words like empathy and togetherness are bad words. They're not. He says they get perverted in manipulation. Don't you think you need to have empathy for me? Don't you think we should all be agreeing here? And Friedman says, no, that's actually manipulation. That's not persuasion. That's not non-anxious leadership. That's very reactive, Friedman would say. No, no, no. To to truly persuade someone is to do what Jesus does, which is to ask a bunch of questions and then act decisively instead of weaponizing words as forms of coercion. Why do I care about this so much? It seems to me that in American culture in the 21st century, we have either lost our desire or our ability to persuade other people. That's not where the money's at, especially in our media ecosystem, so nobody does it anymore. Nobody tries to actually persuade someone else. Instead, you see force. Force is the last bastion of the weak and anxious non-persuader. If you have to force somebody to do it, you haven't convinced them. And your power will only last as long as you are in that role. We try things like manipulation, like Friedman talks about. We try to use empathy or consensus as weapons against other people. And sometimes things like consensus just proves that we're an anxious leader because not everybody's going to agree about everything all the time. And yet Jesus still acts decisively. He wasn't waiting for the Pharisees to agree with him. Perhaps you indulge your anxiety on social media. I've seen this. Where I'm just frustrated with the bad people who don't agree with me. And maybe I won't be crazy on my own Facebook post, but I like all the other people who are anxious. I might agree with their post. So, you know, we just, instead we indulge our anxiety. Trying to get at the bad people we don't, that don't agree with us. I don't know a single person that's ever been persuaded by a Facebook post or an Instagram post. We've given up. We've given up on trying to change people's minds. Jesus hasn't. If you took the tack of Jesus in persuasion about whatever you desire to persuade someone over, it would probably look like being a patient listener, asking lots of questions, and still acting decisively. To try to stay close to the script here, let me demonstrate how I did this a few weeks ago uh, with some friends of mine who aren't regular in church at all, but we got to talking about Sabbath, and we got to talking about these Pharisees. And I tried a method of persuasion by asking a series of questions. They were just couldn't believe these Pharisees. And I said, yeah, okay, sure. These Pharisees are bad dudes, but was there something that they got right? I asked the question. They go, well, I suppose they were sincere in their beliefs. So then I come back with another question. Yeah, but isn't, isn't 
there's something deeper than that. I mean, can you honestly tell me that you're a really well-rested person right now? Well, no, I guess not. But that's because of my work. My work makes me check email all the time, and I really have to be on, you know, all seven days of the week. And I got this uh, Slack channel that I'm always expected to respond on. Okay, I hear you. But what if, another question, what if you had a boss that actually valued one in seven and true rest, and when you went home, you were actually allowed to rest? Would your life be better? Well, yeah, it would. Oh, well, how would your life be better if you actually practiced Sabbath? Okay, I know that's a bunch of leading questions, but a part of that is being decisive about where I know I want to take somebody and asking a bunch of questions. And I persuaded some people that they weren't keeping the Sabbath well and that maybe they ought to consider it. Persuasion. Are you persuaded to find true and deep rest in God? Knowing that deep rest in God means knowing the Lord of the Sabbath. That's our final point this morning. The Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord, which means master of the Sabbath. He is is the master of Sabbath rest. He first says this in verse 5 about himself. He uses his favorite title to describe himself, the Son of Man. And he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath in the context of the grain picking His longer explanation in verses 3 and 4 goes back to the 1 Samuel passage, which we read, which Kaya beautifully uh, pronounced the funny Hebrew names. The story is this. Uh, King David has been anointed king of Israel, but he hasn't yet succeeded to the throne. And King Saul still has the throne, and Saul is after David. So David's on the run. He's got some men with him. And they are presumably very, very hungry. Now, this bread that they would have had in one of the temples of Bethel there uh, was the bread that would come out on the Sabbath day for various Sabbath rituals and sacrifices that would have happened. So David comes in to the temple and, uh, in Bethel, and he's like, hey, do you got anything to eat? And the priest is like, all we got is the bread on the altar. And the priest is like, I think that's okay. Let's do that. Well, the Pharisees would have said, no, 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 there's no way you can do that. And Jesus asks the question and goes back to the Old Testament, and they would have been stumped. Oh, my goodness. Now, Jesus is making a subtle point here, which is, hey, David was the king of Israel, and he was unrecognized. I'm the king of Israel, and I'm unrecognized, and I'm on the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The fact that Luke records no answer here after verse 5 to this particular story proves that they were stumped. Otherwise, he would have recorded an answer. In the next story, Jesus demonstrates his master position over Sabbath when he heals the man with the withered hand in verse 10. But how he does it is really, really important. Last week, uh, I took you through the story of Jesus healing a leper who would have been unclean in that culture, and Jesus touches the man in order to heal him. But here, he doesn't do that. There's no ritual. There's no anything else. Rather, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. This takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. How does God create? By the very power of his speech. And Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus was actually the word that spoke creation into existence. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father decrees creation and the Son accomplishes it. And the Holy Spirit preserves it. When Jesus says, stretch out your hand just by the power of his speech, just like he created in Genesis 1, now he's recreating a man's hand with the power of his speech. Worship 
This one, this one is the creator. And freedom. What? I can use my hands again? Jesus hadn't lost the plot like the Pharisees had. He's the master of the Sabbath. So if Jesus really is the master of the Sabbath, then we will ultimately find no rest without him. We will ultimately find no deep-seated well-being without Jesus. My son will often come to me and want to play with building toys. He's at that stage of life where he likes to build things, Legos or magnet tiles, these little tiles that have magnetic ends you can build up. And he likes, he always asks me, hey, Daddy, will you play with me? But what he really means when he says, Daddy, will you play with me is, Daddy, will you build the thing? Because he doesn't quite have the skills yet to build things. And so I know if Daddy, will you play with me means Daddy's hunkered down on the floor trying to build some awesome creations. And some of the things I'm most proud of with magnet tiles, I like to build, uh, you know, cathedrals because I'm a church nerd. And Davy loves it, and I'm doing all the work. But one of the things I've learned about Davy is, you know, for a lot of kids, building the Lego creation is really the fun in itself. Doing the work is fun, and then when they're done, they just move on. But not for Davy. When we build magnetile set or Lego set, he gets his Lego men out, he gets his stuffed animals out, and he starts playing within it. And because I've done all the work, Davy finally has the freedom to play within it. And just like Jesus, there is no rest. There's no playfulness for us unless Jesus weren't doing all of the work himself already. Jesus is the master of the Sabbath, and we can't really rest without him accomplishing it first. We can't really feel satisfied unless it is him we are worshiping. And we can't really have freedom unless he's the one who releases us from our freedom or from our slavery to feel like we always have to do something. And this is Jesus' decisiveness too. His final form of persuasion is the life he leads, the perfect life he leads. He's even resting perfectly for us. Look at verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Freedom and worship. Jesus is resting perfectly on our behalf, and he works perfectly on our behalf, restoring us to God in a way we never could by dying the penalty of our sin, and yes, our lack of Sabbath keeping on the cross to restore us to him. He does the rest we could never do. He does the work we could never do so that we could finally worship him, so that we could finally feel freedom in him, which we could never have without him. Friends, you can rest deeply because Jesus rested for you and he worked for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we need the rest of Christ so that we could play, so that we could, Christ having done all the work, we could rest in him. Would you make that true in our souls a little more today and this week? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.